Well, every beautiful garden, large or small, is a composition, a composition of carefully chosen details. Although the choices can be daunting, the Bartlett Book of Garden Elements offers a guide that is both visual and practical, highlighting classic as well as innovative details to delight the eye while serving the form and function of any garden. In today's lecture, our speaker will take us on a pictorial journey through highlights of her new book. She will discuss the origins and roots of garden design while providing practical suggestions for the use and maintenance of these elements in the contemporary garden. Rose Love Bartlett worked in partnership with her late husband, Michael Valentine Bartlett, for more than 28 years, complementing the bones of his garden designs with flower, herb, and edible plantings. She was a member of the board of directors of the Friends of the U.S. National Arboretum for eight years. Rose planned their extensive garden travels, photographed many of the garden elements found in this book, and organized the garden history and design lectures they presented as a duo. She now owns a garden shop in Asheville, North Carolina, that specializes in unusual plants, as well as garden and nature-related antiques. In 2014, she published The Bartlett Book of Garden Elements, a work she collaborated on with her husband, Michael, who was a fifth-generation landscape gardener and whose work was featured in a number of magazines, including Architectural Digest, House Beautiful, House and Garden, Metropolitan Home, The Washington Post Magazine, W and Southern Living, as well as in the book by David Hicks, My Kind of Garden. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Rose Bartlett. Thank you, Paul. That was such a lovely introduction, and thank you all for being here today. And I'm thrilled to be at the Virginia Historical Society to share with you this project that has just been near and dear to my heart for many, many years now. I will start by giving you some background on the book and by introducing you to my co-author, Michael Valentine Bartlett. Michael and I met as students at the University of Pennsylvania and we were great pals before we took the advice of some friends and took our friendship to another level that um, ended in a, a very successful relationship both professionally and personally for almost 30 years. Michael uh, was, uh, he, as Paul mentioned, he passed away in 2008, way too young. Uh, but he was a man of great passion and energy and highly motivated by all sorts of things in life, great wit and charm, and he knew from a very early age that his passion was gardens, gardening, and plants. I grew up in Philadelphia in Center City, uh, not much exposure to that world, but uh, after we graduated from Penn, he came to a house I was renting and made some raised beds for me. I planted everything with seeds, they grew like wild, and I've been gardening ever since. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Michael was also, in addition to being a photographer and knowing so much about plants, he was a hands-on garden designer. And uh, in this case, he had um, checked in on a project and uh, were not very happy with the uh, grading that was being done. So in a very good-natured way, he hopped in the bobcat and showed the men exactly how he wanted it to be done. That, that's the kind of designer that he was. We started traveling and, and visiting gardens, and um, it became almost an obsession. We'd spend a two-week trip in England and see 24 or 28 gardens. And this gives you some idea of the time frame of the photographs. Uh, those, uh, that little fellow on my back is our son, and he's now 28 years old. We'd been taking photographs for about five years before that he came along. And we were doing that really uh, as amateurs, the photography, and for our own personal enrichment, the travel, the photography was a form of continuing education for us. And uh, we would arrive at these gardens on the day, and we took whatever weather was there. So in this case, we're in England on a typically English, cloudy, drizzly day. But sometimes Mother Nature was, was very uh, good to us. Here we are in the south of Italy at La Mortola, Villa Hanbury, about five years later, and it couldn't have been a more beautiful day. One thing Michael 
did take great pride in, uh, and Paul mentioned, is that he considered himself to be a fifth generation landscape gardener. And he came from a family with a very rich history of gardening. His, this is the Bach Tower. His, uh, well, one of his great-great-grandfathers laid out the grounds at Lehigh University. His great-grandfather bought land at the Bach Tower. He didn't start the Bach Tower. This is a photograph of it, uh, which was created by Edward Bach, who was a Dutch immigrant who'd made great success in publishing, and he wanted to give back to the American people. So he decided to build a public, uh, public pleasure ground for them in Lake Wales, Florida, centered around this carillon. The Carillon, and it was always open to the public, uh, was created out of uh, local or native marbles with lots of uh, wrought iron detailed work and uh, many garden ornaments incorporated like the vertical sundial that you see here. Mr. Charles Austin Buck, Michael's great-grandfather, was a director of the Bethlehem Steel Company, but a passionate amateur horticulturist. He was the overseer of mines uh, in Latin American countries, Cuba, Mexico, South America. And when he traveled, he collected seeds and cuttings of exotic plants that he took home to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where he had a greenhouse as early as 1920. And he propagated those plants. When he was about 60, his wife had passed away, so he bought some land adjoining the Bach Tower. Uh, and he enlisted the Olmsted firm to design the gardens for him, to lay out the gardens. In fact, he had them lay out the gardens before the house was sited because it was more important to him that the gardens have the best exposure possible. During his travels, he also became enamored with Spanish colonial architecture. So you'll see throughout uh, wonderful um, things such as, well, back, I'll go back one, uh, the, those hand-forged hinges, such a lovely detail on a garden gate that leads out into the garden. Wrought iron uh, all, all around the house and in the gardens, hand forged, and lovely um, tile work. Let's see if this I can get this pointer to work, but you can see the tile work along the base of the balcony and also underneath the balcony so that the person sitting on the terrace below would have something interesting to look at. No detail was left uh, unaccounted for. Heading out into the garden, uh, this lovely stairway with, with uh, Spanish colonial tiles, alternating patterns on each of the, of the, uh, the risers, and leading to an alley of standardized uh, orange trees that have been trained into a barrel shape. Throughout, you'll find whimsical and colorful garden ornaments like this uh, fountain with the majolica uh, frogs that are spewing water into the lower basin, and a monumental-sized olive jar, or tinahoon, that is marking the intersection of two paths. Now, his son, Leonard J. Buck, was a geobotanist by education. Uh, geobotanist meaning that he had a particular interest between the plants and the underlying soils there, the mineral content of the underlying soils. He found land outside of New York City that was a glacial stream valley with lots of basalt rock outcroppings. At the time, he was a director of the New York Botanic Garden where he met a man named Zenon Schreiber who was a Swiss landscape architect with a specialty in alpine plants. So they worked together to uncover these rock outcroppings that had been overgrown with invasive plants. And they did this without any plans on paper. They did this through conversation and through blood, sweat, and tear work of, of digging out the plants and even using dynamite to expose some of the rock surfaces. They created a micro ecosystems so that they were able to grow alpine plants that wouldn't ordinarily be able to grow, be grown in this part of the world. In between the rocks, there are great expanses of uh, woodland plants, such as the, the uh, candelabra primula, the phlox stalinifera, which is a native, uh, and uh, rustic details like the handrails that adjoin the, the paths and connect the different rocks and a stream that runs through uh, that will reflect the sky and also bring light into some of the shadier parts of the garden. The stream you'll notice is lined with uh, locust logs. Locust is referred to as ironwood because of its strength and its resistance to mildew, disease, and insect damage. 
His uh, daughter, Martha Bartlett, Mrs. Charles Bartlett, uh, also inherited that gardening gene. She and her husband, Charles Bartlett, very cleverly found a piece of land in the city, inside the city limits of Washington, D.C., that overlooked a park. And this, you're, you're seeing the parkland here that, that is really sort of their backyard. Um, Michael tells me that when he was a child, uh, he was rather rambunctious. And uh, when he had a little too much energy, he was sent into the parkland to dig holes so that they would be ready when nurserymen from North Carolina arrived with tr great truckloads of rhododendrons and azaleas. And at this point in time, this, uh, this uh, park really resembles a, a woodland that you would find in England. This is their view from their terrace. Ooh, what happened? Something went black. <laughs> uh, did I do that? Just trying to click it. That's the one, yep. Well, there we go. I hope that I won't do that. It's probably me. Um, it couldn't be the, the technological equipment, but anyhow, uh, here we are at the, the backyard, the terrace where, where Michael grew up. Um, his mother not only had a great interest in horticulture, but also an amazing collector of American folk art. So you'll see throughout the garden uh, many uh, sculptural features like the whippet and those columns that she found in, in uh, Ohio and trucked back to Washington, D.C. Um, the, the house itself is more like a pavilion. She designed it. It's open on four sides to the outdoors, so you have this wonderful flow in and out. And so uh, you'll see those columns from another perspective. And then those planters there are repurposed pig troughs that she's turned into planter boxes. Part of her folk art collection is a lot of cast iron that she's collected for many years. This urn dates from the 19th century. The two owls that are guarding it were probably used in a, in a barn to ward off uh, bad vermin. And uh, here, a stone bee skep that was never used for beekeeping, but rather a sculptural ode to the art of beekeeping. And there, tucked among some of those uh, many rhododendrons, uh, is a, a bird bath, another uh, 19th century, probably Pennsylvania cast iron piece, part of her collection. Her sister, uh, Nancy Pine, Mrs. John Pine, also inherited the gardening gene. And in this case, she took a large expanse of a flagstone terrace and lifted some of the stones and interplanted with herbs to not only soften the terrace, but also add a sensual addition to the garden of the fragrance as you brush up against the herbs uh, and or touch them with your hand. And with that, all of those photographs appear in the book, but they appear within one of the 24 chapters in the book. Uh, there are over a thousand photographs in the book taken in about 21 different countries. So, um, and, and as a little footnote, on the other side of Michael's family, he is a, a great grandson of uh, Charles Broadway Rouse, who uh, was instrumental in the Virginia Historical Society's origins. So I had to point that out, too. We'll start with the section on paving. Paving is a, a universal. You'll find paving in just about any garden that you go through. And brick, brick paving has been used for many generations. The Chinese used brick extensively. But the Romans were real masters of it, so much so that they had mobile kilns that they took with them when they were conquering new territories so that they would be ready to start construction as soon as that land was there. The brick that you see here is referred to as a Roman brick because of its dimension, which is longer and narrower.
borrower, even though this particular garden is in the south of Spain at the Alcazar. But it's laid on edge to expose its narrower uh, dimension, and it's laid in a herringbone pattern, which uh, is a very strong pattern because it's interlocking. It's a great pattern to use for a driveway because it can bear heavy loads, and turning radiuses will not pop the brick. But you need a very skilled bricklayer because there are so many uh, joints there, mortar joints, that to have it be a successful pattern, you need a very skilled bricklayer for that sort of thing. But brick has this added dimension of being very diverse. The patterns are, are just almost endless. In this one uh, path in Sissinghurst, you see the basket weave pattern with a running pattern down the middle, the whole picture held together by stacked brick, which acts as a retaining edge and holds all the brick together. Uh, interesting thing is that if your brick is the same dimension, just about any pattern will require the same number of bricks per square foot. This is a, is a larger brick paver, uh, which you find in Antigua, Guatemala. Uh, this is, uh, the color of this being this yellow color indicates that there's a lot more lime in the clay that's being used. When there's a pinker hue to the brick, that means there's more iron. In this case, this large brick is probably more porous. And so if you want to use an exotic brick in this climate, you should check for that because if it is porous and absorbs too much water, it will crack during the winter freeze and thaw cycle. Glazed brick, uh, this blue glazed glaze brick is found in San Juan, Puerto Rico, even more beautiful on site because in the distance you'll see the color of the Caribbean Sea reflected in the color of this brick. But the brick uh, that is glazed tends to be more slippery when it's wet. So a solution to that is to imprint a pattern into the brick. That will increase uh, texture as well as increase the visual appeal. This brick is found in Asheville, North Carolina, where I live. You'll also notice that it has no mortar joints, and that allows for a pervious surface so that storm water can percolate into the aquifer rather than running off into the, uh, our waterways. This is a, a, something that Michael designed, which is kind of a compromise between the mortar brick and having pervious surface. He created stepping blocks made of brick in that, in that basket weave pattern. A drawback of not having the mortar is that weed seeds will land and there's a lot more upkeep in keeping your crevices clear of plant growth. Gravel has been used for many generations as well. The Japanese liked to use it. It was a symbol of both purity to them, and they would rake it into these abstract patterns that would represent flowing water in their dry gardens that they called kare sensui. The, um, um, Edwin Lutyens used it in this garden in England that he worked in collaboration with uh, Gertrude Jekyll. And you'll notice it's a very uh, in and out type of path. And this was done purposely to slow down the visitor to the garden because those planting beds are so richly planted with layers and layers of perennials that he wanted you to slow down and take notice of them. This is a driveway, the photograph taken right after completion, by, designed by Michael. And you'll notice that there are bands of cobblestones there. Uh, they work to both visually break the monotony of that large expanse of gravel. They also work a, as a uh, restraining edge to hold the gravel in place. The Romans used lots of gravel, and they referred to those roads as via sternande, or roads that were strewn about, because that's one of the downsides to gravel, is that it doesn't stay in place without some maintenance. In this case, the gray gravel works in the design. It, it, uh, it pulls together the, the capstone of the seating wall, the furnishings that are being used, but it also practically will hold uh, heat so that in the winter, if you get a, a, a slight snowfall, the, the snow will melt faster. That Another problem with gravel, I have a gravel driveway myself. If you try to remove snow, you also remove the gravel. Edwin Lutyens in India used a crush a sandstone gravel as the uh, foreground, a very dramatic foreground for the Viceroy's Palace there. And pattern and mosaic uh, paving, uh, it's thought that it, it was a, a practical solution to muddy and dusty uh, 
paths and that people would take stones or shells or whatever they had and push them into the surface. It's evolved over time in, into an artistic form of paving. At Lotusland here, these panels of mosaics take the place of flower beds. Uh, at first, they're very difficult and costly to, to make, uh, install, but if you think of it over the course of 30 years of planting and unplanting and weeding those beds, it, it really is not such a bad idea. Um, I'm sorry, this is in, uh, in Prague. You'll see in, in uh, Eastern Europe, lots of uh, paving that is black, uh, contrasting colors of granite sets, small squares of gravel. These are held together with big slabs of granite, the, another use of the restraining edge. It creates a really dynamic pa uh, pattern that really pulls you down that path. And uh, in Japan, uh, a mosaic pattern that's a very free form with a large uh, stepping stone of granite that's set into a sea of small stones of the same material and the same sort of irregular shape. At Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C., the Bliss family imported Mexican pebbles to, um, to create this uh, sheaf pattern which was their family, their family crest, and underneath is the family motto, which translate, translates as ye sow, so shall ye reap. And in Florida, at the Ca Design, a very dynamic pattern of marble set into the chevron pattern, which serves as a boat landing, as well as a place to put some chairs and sit and watch the sunset over the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And this will bring us to some talk about reflective water in the garden. In this case, uh, the reflective water is a water tank in India that is used by this, the, the villagers for practical purposes. They do their laundry, they swim in there, but you'll also notice in the foreground is a platform that's attached to the palace. And the, the royals would go and sit there. It was meant for watching the full moon's reflection in the water tank. They'd also use that as a diving platform, and the water would flow underneath the palace as an early form of air conditioning. At the, in the south of, uh, of Spain, at the Alhambra, the water there is used to reflect the beautiful pattern of the uh, alabaster filigree arches, but it was also a religious purpose. It was an ablution tank, and, uh, and the reflection was so valued that the, the water, uh, sound of water was also valued, but separated into those little fountains at the either end of the pool. After the Spanish reconquered the south of, of Spain, they added those hedges so that they could negate the fact that this was used for the religious pur purpose of ablution tank. And in Pennsylvania, uh, a, a man-made folly with a table of water that is full to the brim, as high as it can be. Whenever you can do that, that enhances your reflective surface. And it's painted a dark color so that you don't see the bottom. And it adds a mystery to your, to your water table. And these pools can also be found in very harsh climates. Here, this is on the topmost level of the garden in Linderhof in the south of Germany, nestled into the Alps. And not too far from here at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson cited this pool. And we have only a little tiny bit of the reflection, but he cited it so that the building would be reflected in the pool. He also used the pool to keep fish that he would use for food. And in South Carolina, at Middleton Place, uh, which is the oldest landscape garden in the United States, the first place where camellias were grown, these butterfly pools are reflecting the sky, but they were also originally used to irrigate the rice fields. Uh, the rice was called Carolina Gold because it brought such riches to the plantation owners in that area. And in Japan, the moss garden. There are over 100 varieties of moss in this garden. And the pond is laid out in the shape of the Japanese character for heart. They don't mind that the water is brown and murky. This might not appeal to our senses, but it's part of the, the uh, philosophy of the imperfect in nature, that there's nothing wrong with nature being imperfect. And the sound of water and the sight of water, water moving adds another dimension. So in order to have the reflection, they've created a weir which is invisible so that you could have the sound and the sight of moving water without interfering with the reflection. 
The same thing is done in Northern Ireland at the Mount Usher Garden. Uh, the river Vartry forms the spine of this garden, and the, the banks were planted by Edward Robinson, who was a great landscape uh, gardener in the early 20th century. They've created a weir so that we can reflect those beautiful plantings, but we, we're not, uh, we don't have to suffer the loss of the sound and sight of moving water. And at Bodmin in Wales, this uh, pin mill was originally used to, to uh, manufacture flax. It was imported here as an ornamental garden building. And the reflection was valued, but so were the, the flowering water plants. So they are carefully maintained so as not to interfere with the reflection of, of the pin mill. Which will lead us to a section on gazebos. Uh, it's said that the word gazebo was coined by a man named William Halfpenny in the 18th century. He took the Latin suffix ebo, I shall, and attached it to the word gaze. And so in his treatise on garden uh, architecture, he coined the word gazebo. This gazebo is, and generally it is a building sited to have a great view. And, and at the Villa Carlotta here, the great view is of Lake Como and uh, the Alps and the color of the, the roof of the gazebo blends perfectly with the color of the water and the color of the stone. Garden buildings can have other names too. Uh, if, if they're perched on a wall overlooking a body of water, sometimes they're called a belvedere, as this one uh, overlooking Lake Constance in the south of Germany. Or uh, at the Le Bagatelle in Paris, overlooking a collection of over a thousand different types of roses. Uh, older photographs show this a, a, a darker color that would blend more into the landscape, but this is a modern innovation, or else not maybe an innovation. Uh, sometimes gazebos can be small and modest, and, but in this case, looking over a perennial garden and a small labyrinth garden at its base or very functional. In New Zealand, this is a pool house and it houses the changing rooms, bathrooms. You even see a built-in fireplace to extend the seasons of its use. And you'll see also that the swimming pool is tucked behind that wall of Bougainvillea to kind of make it be a mystery and not make the swimming pool be the main feature of that garden room. In, uh, in Italy, at the Garden of the Monsters, this dates to the 16th century. This is a, a grotto, another type of outbuilding, built out of living rock. It was carved out of the stone on site, and surrounding the mouth is a motto that says, Abandon thought, all ye who enter here. But grottos in Italy were also completely man-made. This is in Lucca at the Villa Marlia, which is inland from the coast, but the coast was revered in Italy, and this was to, to remind people of the beauties of the seaside grotto. And tensile structures are more modern in introduction, but they can be used as they are here in Antigua, Guatemala, to cover over an amazing collection of ruins, Spanish, Spanish colonial ruins that date to the 16th century, turning those ruins into a very interesting garden uh, building. And Thomas Jefferson designed this gazebo with double hung sash windows to either protect from cold breezes or allow the cool breezes to blow through, uh, topped with his signature Chippendale railing. This was reconstructed, but according to his plans. And a, a gazebo can also just add the, the whole flavor to a garden room. This is at Mount Stewart in northern Northern Ireland, and it's called the Mediterranean Garden, and, the, and it's all based on the feeling of the gazebo. In this case, the, the garden is located near the flow of the Gulf Stream, so you'll notice many, many much more tender plants than would normally grow in that latitude can be grown there. Uh, wrought iron of, of gazebo in Germany called a, a gazebo for performers. It was the music performers uh, gazebo that gather there in the summer evenings to play for, I think it was crazy King Ludwig. And a more simple design, but quite elegant copper roof umbrella. And you'll notice that the tassels are actually bells that sound in the breeze. Referred to as a rustic, uh, gazebo, but actually if you think about the craftsmanship necessary to choose those uh, rustic logs and twigs and, and join them together so well into that chevron pattern, it really is a rustic in look but very sophisticated in construction. And often gazebos are topped with a birdhouse uh, to add that dimension of having wildlife visit you in the garden and to hear the sound of birds as they approach. 
But bird, birdhouses originally uh, were not what we think of them. They were really practical and used to keep pigeons, that pigeons were raised for their eggs, for food. They were carrier pigeons. So it wasn't really for an ornamental use, but a more practical use for birds in the garden. The uh, Native Americans, though, realized that having birds was very beneficial in that they, they, would, they would eat bad insects, they would eat weed seeds, they would even pollinate. So they were very keen on, on attracting birds to their gardens. And they would probably have a shape like this, but it would have been made from a natural gourd. And often the birdhouse is more ornate than the gazebo it sits upon. Purple Martin House on, on multiple levels. It's important to have a perching level at each entrance uh, for the birds to uh, make their way into the birdhouse. Another thing is that uh, you should avoid a shiny rooftop if you use a metal roof for your birdhouse because that will scare the birds away. And this birdhouse is actually an architectural model of the house itself a bird feeding platform and someone saw fit to add a swing so that the birds can have a little fun while they're <laughs> surveying their food. And tucked into the corner, we saw a picture of this earlier, but bringing water into the garden is an, also a sure way to attract wildlife and birds to your garden. Sculpture, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch have a term that they call just for nice, which is items that are made simply for their design and for pleasure. And uh, this squirrel tucked into the corner of a garden would be an example of just for nice. But often the sculpture will reflect the, the interest of the owner of the garden. I would guess that this owner is a dog lover. Or they will tell a story. Uh, in this case, in, in Italy, you'll often find these great river gods. And th these river gods are the rivers that feed the Villa Lante, which is based on water that flows from, from, from one part of the garden to another. So homage is paid to the river gods for, for their help in making the garden. During the landscape movement, uh, just ornamental features were eschewed. And uh, what became the ornamental features were, were very architectural features. So during that part of the late 19th century, English gardens would have bridges, and they would have a pavilion like that called the Music Pavilion. This is at Stourhead, and there are a number of houses that surround the lake there, which was designed also by an amateur, uh, not designed by a professional, once again. and. Uh, Mythological stories, also very popular subject matter for sculpture in the garden. Diana the Huntress is, is a very popular theme. Or biblical stories, Adam and Eve here at Ledoux Gardens in Moncton, Maryland. You, you don't see it, but Adam is holding an apple behind his back. And this is placed right next to an apple orchard for effect. <laughs> I don't know what this story is, but those people look like they're having a good old time in the summer swimming pond. And uh, urns, a very classical form of garden sculpture. William Kent created these urns, and also the loggia behind them called the preneste, which is a, a stopping point, a resting point in the garden, meant to be a sculptural accent in the overall garden design and an urn that's topped with wrought iron tulips found at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, DC. Uh, another urn at Washington, DC's Dumbarton Oaks in the, in the boat form, uh, holding a cornucopia, all being held up by four turtles. And in Victorian England, this, the Sphinx was a very popular garden sculpture. And often, the face of the Sphinx was carved in the likeness of the owner of the garden. And as beautiful as your sculpture and graceful as it can be in the daytime, uh, think about lighting it at night. It can add a whole other dimension to your, your uh, experience with it and show other angles of its beauty. And a trompe l'oeil here, this is a, a, an abrupt end to a garden path. That's just a flat piece of wood that someone has very skillfully applied uh, pieces of wood and a mother, mother of pearl uh, fountain in the background to make it seem as though the garden continues. And the sculpture can, can blend, should blend with its immediate surroundings. Here the nautilus shape is blending very well with the topiary trees and the mounds of, of Santalina planted at its base. 
And our final uh, chapter is on topiary. Uh, topiary is ornamental, but it also can have horticultural purposes. It can also be very functional. In this case, these thuya are, are trained into a cone shape, which is a very good horticultural practice because it's allowing light to reach all parts of the plant so that the base of the plant is getting as much light as the top and it will create a much healthier plant for you. This is an arts and, uh, arts and crafts garden in England called Tintinhull. Uh, so it has a very basic shape to it. And those dome shapes are, are marching along these diamond-shaped granite slabs, very much in keeping with the aesthetics of that era. The Japanese have been using topiary for many generations. These azaleas are, are trained into a shape they called karakomi, or a cloud-like shape. And they will actually go in when the azaleas start to bloom and pluck some of the flowers because they don't want them to turn into masses of color. They want to have that mix between the color and the green. This is a, a very severe type of, of topiary called hakozakuri or box shape. Uh, it's I've used to expose the inside of the plant so that you can see some of the structure of the interior of the plant. And this is called hazui. Uh, it's, they do this with a long, venerable branch of a tree that they really feel should be preserved in, in its glory and, and to venerate its age. So this is, uh, hazui is the same word as uh, the word for resting your chin on your, on your arm. And uh, it's, you can see that it is uh, very similar to that. And to be a topiary artist in Japan, you need to be very balanced and agile. We see people tr trimming those, um, those branches like, uh, attached to stilts all the time. And again, and this is in Wales, and it's the same idea of a venerable old hedge that's not just sheared to a flat surface, that you've looked at it and you are, you are understanding all the parts of that hedge. And even though you're, you're maintaining it and containing it, you're still allowing its true nature to show through. Uh, topiary can be used as a very formal measure. Michael designed this for a curator in Washington, D.C., who wanted a very formal approach to her house. She entertained a lot. She wanted it to be interesting in, in all seasons. This was photographed very shortly after it was planted. And you'll notice that there's an uneven growth on the obelisk. So when you do a very formal design like this, you should look at the light, because we found that basically the light on the far obelisk was not as strong. So in successive years, a new plant was trained onto the obelisk, so they're both green. Uh, if you undertake any of these type of plantings, you should really study your light and definitely get your soil uh, sampled, get it tested so that you know what you're working with before you commit to something that's so intensive. In uh, Ledoux Gardens in Maryland, they've created an outdoor room by training a hemlock hedge in this way. And this is in England at Hidcote, uh, actually designed by an American named Lawrence Johnston in the 1930s. It's a very fantastical garden that you go through arches and you see these architectural elements and birds, and uh, it just delights the senses. A similar type of garden outside of Newport, Rhode Island called Green Animals, you'll notice the arch is quite low, and that forces you to bend down to get into the garden with the animals. It's sort of like going down the rabbit hole. Uh, but one thing about these plants is that they used privet, and privet will mature very rapidly, but you'll be pruning for the rest of your life. <laughs> A newer approach to topiary is to create a steel armature, to stuff that with sphagnum moss, and then to plant over it with annuals. This is done in Germany uh, to create this peacock at the garden at Meinau Island in, uh, on Lake Constance. And a simpler approach at the Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh is just this mass planting of a plant that's readily available now called Dichondra Silver Falls. And it's a great plant to, to use in planter boxes and containers. 
Vertical gardening is becoming more and more popular, and this is a, just a sandwiched wall of sphagnum moss planted with succulents. Uh, if you look online, you can find all kinds of kits now. So if you have an expansive wall that has nothing growing on it, uh, you, it's, it's something that you can do relatively easy. They come in all kinds of budget levels, depending on how many bells and whistles you want. But you can get very simple boxes and plant them with your annuals and, and dress up a very uh, drab wall if you have one. Uh, here we have espalier, and espalier has been used to train fruit and grapes. Uh, it has advantages of being able to increase production in a small space, but it can also create microclimates so that you might be able to grow things that are only marginally hardy in your area. In this case, uh, they've espaliered oranges, but we're in the south of Spain where they would grow naturally, but they wouldn't naturally grow in that pattern. There's a lot of training gone into that. But not far from here at the Ginter Garden is a wall that's planted with uh, apple and pear espaliers. They call that the cordon uh, form when they're in layers like that. One thing, if you're placing this type of uh, planting, though, to Look at your exposure because it can get too hot and actually cook your fruit on the vine. This is a self-clinging cactus found in Mexico. That just grows up the wall all by itself. But in this case, wisteria, which we have all around us, needs to be trained and to be attached. This is the, the uh, Asian form of wisteria, which I highly suggest you don't plant. Um, it will take down your house. There are, there is a native wisteria called wisteria frutescens, uh, one called amethyst falls. It will get large, but not nearly so large. The flowers are the same color. They're a little bit smaller, but it often blooms more than once a season. And this is uh, in Arley Hall in England, northern England. They call this form of uh, plant training pleaching. Some people refer to it as a hedge on stilts. And uh, these actually were planted in the 1860s. And they, they prune them before they flower. And by doing that, they're able to contain the size of the trunks as well as the size of the tree head. And at Dumbarton Oaks, they've done the same sort of pleaching technique with uh, uh, a, a plant called hornbeam. And they've trained it to, into an ellipse shape, which gives the name to that garden room, which is called the ellipse. And uh, in, in Europe, you'll often see these green theaters. These are hedges that create the flanking areas for uh, performances of opera or theater. The performers would hide in between the hedges and come, back when it come out when it was their time. It's backed by the Temple of Apollo. And pollarding was developed um, as a way for feudal lords to allow their, their um, <coughs> their subjects to collect the new growth. They, they prune the new growth and use it as kindling and as fodder for their livestock. And it's, it's evolved to become a technique that's used in a lot of city squares in Europe, where you want a dense canopy of shade with a large tree, but you want to keep the tree smaller. That's in Holland, and this is an example uh, that you find in Spain. And in Holland, this is a, a, a little cottage, couldn't be any closer to the road. So they've kind of done a hybrid of pleaching and pollarding. And when those trees leaf out, they will have much more privacy than, than they do now. <laughs> and our final photograph brings together a number of different garden elements. You'll see the obelisk sculptures in the foreground, the great topiary obelisk, the reflective basin, the raised fountain, wrought iron, Found, uh, in the back and urns on top of the pillars. And it's just a pleasing picture showing that many garden elements can be used in one small space without it appearing too overdone or busy. Thank you all for your attention. And if you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to try to answer them. Yes, I wanted to ask about the walks. Uh, in colonial times, they used to put oyster shells below uh -huh. them. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, what was, what's your thinking about the difference between uh, mortar in the, in the brick walk and uh, leaving them open? Well, it's, there's a trade-off, as there is in so many things. Um, the mortar will 
require less maintenance on a year-to-year -year basis, but in terms of the environment, having the, um, the pervious surface, allowing the water to, to percolate through the joints in the brick paving is a much better thing. Uh, and if you can figure out a way to, to get rid of the weed seeds without uh, going nuclear, uh, you know, there are ways. <laughs> at, at Dumbarton Oaks, uh, which I showed you several photographs, they actually have a man who uses a small blowtorch uh, that you can actually get at Lowe's and goes around and bur burns the weed seeds. Or you can use vinegar. Uh, there's, a, there's a horticultural vinegar. Um, it, it will demand more maintenance, but long term, uh, you're, you're adding to the aquifers and you're keeping the waterways cleaner. Do they lay them just into the, uh, into the earth itself? No, generally, to, if you want to help reduce the weed seeds, they'll use a geotextile level uh, layer of, of a, it's a, a fabric basically, mm -hmm. keeps the weeds down, and then they use a sand and they, they work it that way. I see. Thank you. You've mentioned using cast iron ornaments, mm -hmm. cast iron rust, uh, rust, excuse me. Uh, how do you treat that to keep it from well, rusting all the, the stuff out? One of the, the fine collectors, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The, one of the fine collectors of cast iron that I showed you uh, in, in the photographs uses a wax called Briwax, B-R-I-W-A-X, and you do that Probably you should do it once a season, and if you wax your, your cast iron with that, it will greatly reduce uh, the, its, its corrosive um, tendencies. You can also, there's a, a spray they call clear coat that you can use, but if you do that, be sure you get rid of all the rust you know, before you apply it. You have to use it as a mat because you don't want it to be glossy, but if you use it as a mat, that will seal it. Uh, but if, you, if you've left any, any oxidation there, it will continue to rust underneath your, um, your, your coating. Uh, the, the Dunbarton Oaks, uh, is, is there another Dunbarton? Talks, yes. Yes, this is the one in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown. And you're exactly right. They did hold the famous talks there. And the garden is open to the public. It's not all day, every day, but um, they do have a, a great website, and they are open regularly. And it's a fabulous garden. It's, it's one of the, it's a very fine garden. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., I highly recommend it. What is your favorite garden in the United States, except for Lewis Ginter? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would have to say Dumbarton Oaks. Um, it's, it's extensive. It's right in the city. It has architectural elements to it. It has fine plantings. Uh, it's, it, is, it was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it dates to the 1920s. It's one of the gardens of, of the golden age, they call it. It was de designed by Beatrix Ferrand, who was the first female landscape architect um, in the ASL Association of Landscape Architects. And she worked um, very much hand in hand with the owners. And you know, I've found from looking at lots of gardens that some of the best gardens are the gardens where the owner and the designer worked hand in hand. And that is one of those gardens. Any suggestions on how to get rid of bamboo? Yeah. <laughs> oh, blood, sweat, and tears. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's a really, uh, you just have to keep at it. You have to dig at it. Um, you know, I, I don't recommend chemicals. Um, that's just my preference. Um, there are chemicals you can use, but digging is the best way. And, and if you ever have the temptation to plant bamboo, <coughs> Because uh, it is beautiful, and people are tempted, you would want to really be sure you have it contained in some 
very strong metal container that you would plant in the ground. And even then, it does tend to run, but it won't be as invasive as it just naturally is very difficult to get rid of. Did you have anything on the Brook Green Gardens in South Carolina? I, the ones I have, there are a lot in the book, and there, the one sculpture of Diana the Huntress that I started with, that's from Brook Green Gardens, and that is another fantastic garden. If any of you haven't been there, it's, it's south of Myrtle Beach, but it's very unlike Myrtle Beach, and it's an amazing <laughs> collection of sculptures. Uh, it's an outdoor sculpture museum that you can spend the day in. Uh, it, it dates from the early 20th century. The original owner was a sculptor herself, so some, there are some pieces that she did, but she was a sponsor of many of the American sculptors, and not just American, but a lot of American sculptors in uh, the early 20th century, and it's amazing outdoor sculpture garden um, that I, I, I love. Any of the any of the Western uh, sculptures? I'm thinking, just for example, the sculpture garden in Seattle overlooking Puget Sound. You know, I have not seen that. Um, I I haven't spent enough time in that part of the world as I'd like to. I've been to the Japanese garden there, which is fantastic, uh, but. I just haven't had enough time. I'll put it on my list. Next time. Yes. <laughs> and also on the bamboo, it, you described what I understand is the running type with yes. rhizomes. Couldn't you plant clumping bamboo? There is, there is clumping bamboo, yeah. And, and um, yes, you could. And, and some of those, I think, don't get quite as large. Uh, but there are types of bamboo that are not as invasive, and it would, you know. And I also am a great fan of, you know, consulting your local uh, extension office because a lot of things I've found in traveling a bit, things that are invasive in one part of the country are not invasive in another part of the country. So it can be very specific. And um, anytime you have a question about vines or bamboo, uh, particularly vines, you know, you've got to be very careful. I would check with your county extension office to see what their, their view is in your particular area. Thank you. Uh, could you repeat the name of the uh, plant that you said was really good for planters? It had a white flower to uh -huh. it? Well, it's, it's a silver foliage. It doesn't really flower, but it's called Dichondra, D-I-C-H-O-N-D-R-A, Silver Falls. And um, it's really a, a good container plant. It kind of mingles in with other plants, and it, and it cascades, and it's really, and it's tough. And it, it doesn't get knocked out by the very first frost. It lasts a little bit longer. So it's, it's a really good plant. Anyone else? Thank you all very much.